Uh, okay, just just to let you guys know, I, I want to thank, if you're a volunteer here and you do uh, some stuff around here, thank you so much. I mean, everything we do around here is like a volunteer army. 50 to 75 people a week it takes to do everything that we do here during a week. And so you have, you have greeters, people set up communion. Uh, you have... Uh, people who help out in children's and youth, and so they bring people bring food every week. Everything around here is a volunteer effort because we're poor; we don't have money to pay anybody. So, but everything's a volunteer effort. So, if you help out around here, I just want to say thanks. You're totally appreciated. Just want you to know that. Everybody else should go. Yay! Thank you. Uh, men's prayer groups. We we are starting to get these things finally uh, up and running. Jason Harris uh, was uh, in charge of these, and, and he had a baby, so I'm not faulting him there or anything. You know, he's doing a good job. You know, making babies and stuff. So so we like that. <laughs> So now uh, we're actually starting the prayer group. So if you signed up for one, if you haven't got a phone call this week or an email, uh, then next Saturday morning at 7 a.m., uh, Kathy Monet downtown, they're all going to meet together. They're going to talk about what days people can meet in different groups. We'll put you together into your groups, and the mornings you're going to meet before work for accountability and prayer for each other. If you didn't get a chance to sign up for that and you want to be a part of it, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. Sign up because, seriously, guys, we need other guys to really help us stay on the straight and narrow because guys are just a little nuts sometimes, and we need other guys to come alongside us and smack us around a little bit. Uh, lastly is this. On Wednesday nights, we are doing the World Religions class. You are invited. If you missed the first week, go to our website, ourelement.org. Click on My Element. On the side, you will see uh, the, the World Religions class. Listen to the first week, get the notes, and then come for the second week. If you are busy on Wednesday nights, but your kids aren't, we are doing a children's program on Wednesday nights uh, all throughout the eight weeks of this. So you can actually bring your kids and you know drop them off. At least we'll tell your kids about Jesus, even if you're off doing whatever else you're doing, but, you know, that's cool. Bring your kids, drop them off, because we... I'm trying to be nice about it. <laughs> Maybe you don't... I don't want you to know about world religions. Whatever. Okay, drop your kids off. We'll teach your kids about Jesus, and it'll be great. Uh, if, if you want to, if you're looking for something for your kids to do. I just probably offended half of you, but whatever. All right, why don't you stay on there, reading God's Word. This is Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 15, and it says this. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father, this morning I do ask that we would be a people who believe the good news that you have given us, that we would understand the kingdom of God and the people you call us to be and the place that you call us to live within. We ask that we would learn to be your children and worship you as our dad. Amen. Have a seat. So we are starting a new series this week, uh, calling it Empire. I, I thought about calling it Evil Empire, but... But then, you guys think about Rage Against the Machine. I don't want you to think about Rage Against the Machine during church services. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, you know, I'd like that. I only know it from Guitar Hero. I mean, anyway, the series, the series is going to run, yeah, run six weeks. Uh, my messages will now be normal time and length. You're welcome. Okay. I know the last couple of weeks have been like 45 minutes long. People are like, oh my goodness. It's not normal. Uh, unless I really get going to get some tangents on it. So what we're doing is we're going to take a biblical and historical look at what God called his people to be a part of, uh, what they did with that calling, and how we also today are to be part of that same call. Now, I know I sound very vague, much like your parents probably trying to explain the birds and the bees to you with, like, pencils and rubber bands and looking very uncomfortable because they don't know what to do with it. You know, it's, I, and I have to be a little bit vague because, essentially, this whole idea is going to take us six weeks to unpack. Okay, so at the end of six weeks, you'll probably get a better idea of what we're talking about. Um, 
I think you'll understand the call of Christianity better and uh, or your money back. How's that? Or your money back. You can. Yeah. Uh, if you've ever said I am going to come for six weeks to something, I would say make it these six weeks. Uh, because it, this, this is like a puzzle that fits together. Last year at uh, winter, we were, we were in Tahoe and snowboarding, didn't break myself at all, so that's good. Uh, but someone brought a thousand-piece puzzle. And then our friend, their daughter's name is Jana, and apparently Jana likes puzzle pieces, and I don't know if she eats them or what she does, but she kind of took and a couple disappeared, and so they put together the puzzle, and you couldn't really get the whole puzzle together because you're missing some pieces. That, that's kind of what this whole series on empire is like. And so if you can't make it a week, go to our website, download the message, get on the same page, because it's all going to fit together. On the other side, you're going to look at back at these six weeks and go, wow, that's amazing. Not because I'm so good, because I, I, you know, I'm not, but I, I just think you'll get a really good idea of what this looks like. Uh, today we're going to jump in. We're going to be talking about what's called the kingdom of God. Uh, next week we'll look at that a little bit versus man-made empires or kingdoms. The whole idea of the kingdom of God is a very Jewish concept. Now, we in, in westernized Christianity, we don't understand the Jewish ideal of the kingdom of God because we think, oh, kingdom, and we just run away with these bizarre ideas. This morning, I want to give you an idea of what the kingdom of God is. There's a lot of information here, so you're going to have to go with me. To Jesus, the kingdom of God was the most important subject that he ever spoke about. 51 times he uses the phrase kingdom of God. 31 times he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. And so some people wonder, is he talking about two different things? No, he's talking about the exact same thing. During the time in Israel's history where Jesus is actually living upon this earth, the Israelites have been beaten and conquered by people after people after people. And the Israelites are the people who are claiming they follow the one true God, the only God that is. And yet they keep getting beat up. Do you want to follow the one true God? Sure, smack, that's how it is. This is that's, that's how it works for us. It's kind of crazy like that. You know? And if they really were the people of the one true God, why do they keep getting beat up all the time? Why does that happen? Now, there came different views in this, which led to three major religious movements at the time that Jesus walked on the earth. The first one is called the Sadducees. The Sadducees, the Sadducees ran the temple uh, in Jerusalem. They were put in power by the Roman government. Okay. Uh, last year we looked at Hanukkah, right before Christmas. I gave you all the historical stuff of what Hanukkah means and how it's not the Jewish Christmas and all that stuff. Talk about a guy named Judas Maccabee. It was actually a relative of Judas Maccabee who started this movement of the Sadducees. They started very good. They started about bringing worship of God back, but in the end they ended up being puppets of Rome, the oppressive foreign government that rested upon Israel's soil. Now, if someone ever came into Jerusalem claiming to be the son of David, which is a messianic term that Jesus used, uh, the kingdom of God, anything like this, Rome would look at the Sadducees and they would say, hey, you're not doing your job. And they many times would kill them, put other religious people in the place of the Sadducees, and things would go on as normal. They'd find people who would keep the populace under control. So the Sadducees hold the religious place in society because Rome let them. The Sadducees live in a place called Jerusalem. Okay? And Jerusalem is a place where all the haves live. The have-nots live outside working on farms. The haves live inside Jerusalem. Now in Matthew 2, 1 and 2, it says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now they go asking this to Herod. Herod has been running around telling everybody that he is the king of the Jews. And then they say this. We saw a star in the east and we have come to worship him. Well, in Rome, you worship Caesar. You don't worship somebody else. So Herod's got to find this person calling themselves the king of the Jews, who people are worshiping to try and kill this person. And it says, when, Herod, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Why all Jerusalem? 
because the haves have what they have in their lifestyle because of Herod, and Herod keeps his because of Caesar. And so you ask the question, well, why was the kingdom of God not with people like it should have been? What led to this state? The Sadducees didn't really care. The Sadducees were mainly concerned just for their status and keeping what they had. The second group was a group called the Zealots. The Zealots are people who all live out in the woods and they store up guns and ammo because the day is coming when you've got to fight for God and country. Right? Sounds vaguely familiar. So Roman caravans would come by and, and they would be like, Woo! And they'd come running out of the hills all wild-eyed and crazy. And they'd be like, Ah! And they'd, they'd attack the Roman caravans and they'd run back up, up in the hills. You know, they're, they're like young buck dudes and they're all just really excited. You know, you're like, they're like, You're looking at me? And you're like, No. And I'm looking, You want to be looking at me? No. I don't want to be looking at you. This is, this is the Sadducees. And the Sadducees believed that the kingdom of God had to come, didn't come, that the Israel was in the shape that it was because no one would actually fight. You know, this other group, they're called the Essenes. The Essenes are these very contemplative guys that would go out and live in the brush and eat bugs and, and dirt all day. They'd meditate on God. And they believed that God would come and reward them for their aesthetic behavior about living out and eating bugs and dirt. And they believed that Israel was in the shape that it was and that the kingdom of God had not arrived like they thought because people were not separate enough from the world. We just have to be separate enough and not, and not touch any of the evil stuff out there in the world. The last group we have is called the Pharisees. Everybody's heard of the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees believed in interpretation of the law and oral tradition. Theologically speaking, Jesus... His teaching actually coincides with much of what the Sadducees taught about grace and the afterlife and marriage and life in general. Jesus never really condemns the Pharisees for what they believe. He condemns them because they don't live what they say they believe. The people of the land, they love the Pharisees. They really do. The, the Pharisees, they are patriots, they love God, and they are not at all like the Sadducees. And the Pharisees believed that Israel was in the shape that it was, that the kingdom had not come in the way it was supposed to, because people had abandoned God, and they must return to true worship. This went all the way to how they actually even spoke God's name. Again, the Pharisees are loved by the people. They're like the back to the Bible club, when, when that was like positive to be part of that. And because, again, of their strong influence of the Pharisees during the time of Jesus, the commandment against taking God's name in any way in vain was very strictly interpreted. So people would always use euphemisms to avoid misusing God's name unintentionally. And Jesus, when he talked to certain people, they would, they would actually follow that same practice. Okay, they'd follow, Jesus would follow that practice just so he wouldn't irritate or offend his listeners too badly with some of the things that he said. It's like sometimes I say to you, I, I talk about something and I go, oh, that's crap, instead of saying, shh, the other word. You know, that you guys are all, oh, I can't believe he said that. It's why, it's why I say dang instead of damn, you know, because I don't want you guys to be all offended and angry at me. And so you hear this word, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven are actually the words, Malkut Shamaim. Everybody say that, Malkut Shamaim. You sound like a cult. <laughs> Malkut Shamaim. Just Shamaim. This is, this is the idea of heaven, of heaven. It's synonym for God. Much as when people today say, you know, thank heaven, right? It means thank God. Because the terms kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are completely interchangeable. So when Jesus uses this term, kingdom of God, he uses it 82 times. That means it's pretty important. It's important to Jesus. And it's also important to the people because it spoke to the hope of an entire nation. Now, if you have a Bible, open to John chapter 3. We have seen, because we spent a whole year going through the book of John, how you become part of that kingdom of God. This is in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, he's coming to Jesus by night. 
Things in John are loaded with details that we don't really notice. But some people say, oh, he went by night because he was afraid to be seen. Really, if you look at the metaphors that John uses, Nicodemus comes by night because it shows that Nicodemus is in the dark. And all throughout the book of John, you see Jesus is the light. And so who is in the dark is coming to who is in the light in order to be set free. That's what that has to do with. So John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So he's buttering Jesus up. You know, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to say all these really nice things about you first. And Jesus actually just jumps right into what Nicodemus wants to know. So in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the what? Kingdom of God kingdom of God unless he is born again. That's what Nicodemus really wants to know. And so this whole idea, unless you're born again, this, this literally means born from above, a continual process of rebirth and transformation that every day God is doing something new with you and in you. And so Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and to be born. And again, I told you, this, I'm sure Jesus is like, no, you can't crawl back in at 50 because that would be awkward and gross. And, and very creepy. <laughs> you know, and, so this, and this is the guy is the one of the religious people I actually have in charge. And this is what Jesus, really, Jesus literally says, if you want to get it, if you want to understand the kingdom of God, if you want to trust God the way I do, if you want to know why I do what I do, you have to humble yourself. You have to be open to the fact that there is a new way to view reality that is upside down from the present reality. It is a new birth. And that is where Jesus is working with Nicodemus from. Verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Water and Spirit, these are both loaded terms for a Jew. This refers back to Ezekiel, where God says, I will take these dry bones and I will give them flesh again, being born again. That's the whole idea. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. How do you become part of the kingdom of God? new birth. You give your life to Christ, to God. It is your sin for His grace, your death for His life. That's how you become a part of it. Well, well, how much does it cost then? If I want to become a part of it, God, how much does it cost? Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Yeah, a lot of Bible turning today. Most of it's in Matthew though, so you'll be okay. Once you find it, you're good. If you have a Gideon Bible, it's like the first book. Okay, But if you have a normal Bible, it's like the first book of the New Testament. Anybody ever steal a Gideon? Well, you guys are going to be a tough crowd this morning. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Jesus here is talking about the worth and the value of the idea of the kingdom of God. Because once he is gone, this whole idea of the worth of the kingdom of God is going to have to be transmitted by his disciples. They will carry on that message of teaching. Now, Abraham Herschel, who was a Jewish scholar, said, The Greeks learned in order to comprehend. The Hebrews learned in order to revere. The whole point of this is that you are to revere and honor God. Jesus is saying the kingdom is expensive. It will cost you everything that you have. But the joy you find there will overpower everything. Everything. So, how do you get there? New birth. How much does it cost? Everything. What does it bring? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. See, same book. You're all happy with me right there. Chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. 
And if you stay in line with Jesus' teachings throughout the gospel, this whole idea of seeking God's first kingdom is an allusion to selling everything. And that all you could ever dream of in, in joy and purpose in life to fulfill your God-given calling is found first in seeking the kingdom of God. The essence of the kingdom of God is God's rule and a challenge to hear and obey in our lives. And all of Jesus' teaching, like all rabbinical teaching of the time, the vision of God and His will and His kingdom are distinctive. Everything points to the rule and the reign of God. Okay, turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Have you become a part of it? New birth, how much does it cost? Everything, what does it bring? Everything. So in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is constantly here talking to his disciples about how to surrender everything for the ideal of the kingdom of God. At one point, Jesus is talking to a rich young guy who tells him he's kept all the commands, which is very hard to do because I break half of them on the way out of the parking lot because the way everybody else drives around me, it's, it's kind of nuts. So Jesus responds when the guy says, I've kept them all. Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 10, verse uh, 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Now we look at this and we go, yeah, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And we say that because we're poor. And we're like, yeah, those rich people. The point isn't rich or poor. The point is righteousness versus unrighteousness. It is an issue of what you love more than you love God, the kingdom of God. Are you willing to surrender your life to be ruled by money or to be ruled by God? All things work together in Matthew and Mark to give you an idea of, of God and his kingdom. Now, the Jews, they thought they possessed this kingdom by birth. I'm born into it. I have the kingdom of God. But yet Jesus tells Nicodemus that it is new birth. It is new birth. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 21. I'm like, my goodness, this is a lot of verses. Yes, we're going to camp in Matthew 21, though, so that's okay. Uh, in Matthew chapter 1, what happens is Jesus tells the religious leaders how this kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, Jesus says this. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. This is a nice little vineyard. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. So he goes away, the farmers are now farm it, they are not the landowners, they are simply renters. You know, they get the land rent-free. Like, oh, rent-free, that sounds really nice, in exchange for a portion of the crop when it comes in. My wife and I, when we lived in Arizona, uh, I, I was working in this door shop, and I actually ran my finger through a table saw. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. I'm not very good with table saws. I'm still afraid of them to this day. Uh, but I, I didn't keep that job after that because I couldn't really work that much. So what I did for the place we lived for, because I couldn't afford to pay rent, so I like built a spiral staircase and I redid their deck and, and all this stuff. And that kind of paid for the rent. The, these guys are kind of the same way. They, they live on the land. They work it. They have tremendous control as long as they keep their end of the bargain. Usually that means the harvest comes in, they give 40% of the harvest to the landowner. Verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. This means pay their rent. Okay? Everyone hearing the story in the original context would go, yeah, you pay your rent. It's, it's what you do. It says, the tenant seized his servants. They beat one. Well, that's shameful and cowardly. How would you feel if you were the landowner and you sent your servant to go get your rent and somebody beat him up and sent him away? You wouldn't be too happy, right? No, okay. It says, killed another. What? Twice? And stoned a third. That doesn't mean they took him out from behind the barn and gave him some pot. It means they threw rocks at him until he died. Okay, it's, it's, then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. This is out of control. You know, this, anybody seen Pacific Heights with Michael Keaton? Anybody seen that movie? Okay, well, 
he's, he goes in and he rents this place and he destroys it and he won't leave and he won't pay, pay his rent. At the end, Michael Keaton dies. Moral of the story, don't be a Michael Keaton. Okay? Verse 37, last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. And other gospels, uh, the parallel accounts of this uh, parable, they actually says, my beloved son. The Greek and Hebrew word for beloved also has the connotation to mean only, only son. Now, do you see the parallel in that? Only son. God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the people in Israel. Then he sends his only son. In, a, in a Hebrew society, landowners would have many sons, many heirs. This guy only has one. So the people hearing the story just have all the suspense ramped up. It's like in a scary movie and someone says, I'll be right back. You're like, oh, no, you're not. You know, that's not how that works in a scary movie. On our side of the crucifixion and resurrection, we realized what Jesus was saying. That this parable is not so much about the vineyard. This is a parable about the only son. That's what the parable is about. The original hearers know instinctively how this parable is going to end with the death of the son. The landlord is absent. The renters think that if they kill a son, they can t- take possession of the vineyard. They already live on it, use it, work it. It should be theirs. It's like renters today. They don't pay their rent. It's like, oh, I live here and nobody else dies. I'm not going to pay my rent. If you're a renter, pay your rent on time. Dag nabbit. You know what you should never do? If you're going to buy a car, never buy a car from a rental agency because people do not treat rental agency cars very well at all. I, when I get around, I'm like, ooh, e-brake. And I'm like, is there any water around here? It's not my car. I bought the insurance in case I hit a pole. You know, I'm okay. People don't treat things very well that are not their own. This, what the rent, rent-to-own places are, notoriously have this problem. People come in, oh, I want the 52-inch LCD and the entertainment center and the couches. Yeah, and you go home and you sit down. And about two months later, they stop making their payments because they think that they own it because it's in their house and it's theirs and they've had it for two months. So it must be theirs. They feel entitled to something that's not theirs, like they're renters here. They're just like teenagers. Now, do you notice what the landlord says of his son? He says, they will respect my son. In the Greek, that literally means perhaps they will respect him. And I wonder if sometimes that's something God says to us. Perhaps you will respect my son. You know, I, right now, it, it's, we have a beautiful place to be because you get the choice to respect him or not. One day, you don't get the choice. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses, whether you want to or not. So uh, do it now. That's what I'm saying. Verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? What should he do to those tenants, Element? Justice and judgment. No mercy. That's, that's what we want, right? I mean, you don't get to kill the, the landowner's son and get away with it. How dare they? Yes. How dare we? How dare we? Because we are people who claim to live under the rule and the reign of God. And yet we do not follow the things he says. We are just like the renters. You and I are just like them. We contributed to the death of Christ. Jesus, at this moment, is talking to the the chief priests, who are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And this is what he says, verse 41. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. In Luke 20, 16, it says, when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Because Jesus just told them that God will remove the corrupt temple system from its place and the leadership because they're more concerned with power and wealth and fame than the kingdom of God. Because they refused to trust and follow Jesus 
as the only son. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is actually from Psalm 118, verse 22. It says, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Jewish rabbis and commentators always relate this to David, to David, and then ultimately to Jesus, who is called the son of David. In the context of the parable, Jesus is making a point that he is the son of David, the one who is supposed to usher in the kingdom of God. David becomes the greatest of Israel's kings. Jesus would be the king of kings. The way this works is in 1 Samuel, uh, Saul is a king, and he's just gone nuts. And so God says, we're going to get a new king. And so he sends Samuel, his prophet, to go to the house of Jesse to anoint the new king. So Samuel goes, okay. He goes to Jesse's house, and he goes, I get to anoint the new king. And so here comes out the firstborn, the oldest son. And, and Samuel's like, man, it's a dude right there. Okay, wow, he's big and he's strong. And, he's this. and God goes, that's not him. It's like, oh, okay. So brings out another son. He's like, oh, that's a dude too. <laughs> that's the guy we want. The, the, the dude. I sound like it's the dude. No, the, the, the guy, you know, he's the, no, goes to all of Jesse's sons. And then also there, there's no one left. He goes, you got anybody else? And he goes, well, my little boy David, he's out in the field watching sheep. It's kind of what he's good for. You know, so let me see him. And so he comes in and God goes, that's the guy. That's the guy. Because God looked at the heart. The, the builders, his, his, his father and the prophet, were rejecting, and yet God is the one who chose David. David is rejected by the builders. His smaller stature, his ready, his ready appearance, preferred one of the older brothers, but David's strength was from God. David was anointed by God, just like Jesus. David is the stone that was rejected that became the chief cornerstone of Israel. And so the parable, if you follow, draws a line, only son, only stone. And King David would show it away for the future Messiah. When Jesus makes a reference to this psalm at the end of the parable, the listeners would naturally draw a conclusion. The only son of the owner of the vineyard was the son of David, the promised Messiah, the king who would usher in the kingdom of God. The people expected the Messiah would always come from the house of David. And Jesus makes predictions about his death, who would kill him, and ultimately he would conquer and bring in this kingdom of God. Verse 43, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus predicts his future glory. The builders, the chief priests, the Sadducees of the temple will not hinder the success of the Son of David or the kingdom of God. And people ask these stupid questions like, Well, what's better, to be broken to pieces or be crushed with that stone? How's that work? That's a stupid question, okay? The point isn't what's better. You want to be crushed or broken. Which is it? You know, it's, it's, it's about the stone. It's about the stone. It, it doesn't matter who it falls on or who falls on it. The point is the stone always remains. The Talmud, there's a saying. It goes like this. If a stone falls on a pot, woe to the pot. If a pot falls on a stone, woe to the pot. In either case, woe to the pot. Okay? So Jesus is actually making a joke. He makes a joke while these people are telling you guys are going to kill me, and then he cracks a joke, which I think is just great about Jesus because he's got a great sense of humor, which no one today seems to get. You can't laugh in church. That's crazy. No, Jesus is always cracking jokes. It's wonderful. Jesus makes a joke where he points out that the Pharisees want to and will kill him, but they cannot stop the kingdom of God. That is the God that we serve. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. This kingdom of God, his empire, the stone always remains. And you can fall on him or be broken by him or he can fall on you. But he will always remain. And that is what is true, sure, and right. And if you trust your life to the only son, you may never be broken. So, 
you're like, okay, got it. That's a whole lot of stuff. I'm, I'm good. So what's the kingdom of God? <laughs> right? You're like, okay. It's simple. Yet it's, again, very huge in concept. Take us six weeks to unpack this thing. Jesus' use of the kingdom of God is how most rabbis would have actually used it. It was a spiritual term meaning the rule of God over a person and a people who begin or who keep the decrees of God. It was only directed at those who claim to follow God. In Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Those who recited that indicated that they wanted to live a life that followed first the kingdom of God and committed their lives to follow Him. The rabbis always believed if someone confessed this, the, the Lord is our God, indicated an intent to follow God. So you came under the rule and the reign and the authority of the living God. But this only happened by recognizing and bowing under God's authority. Only by doing that and actually beginning to live in God's ways do you come into the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke about it the same way. In Matthew 7, 21, he says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, to me will come into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Yes, we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace, but our lives will be changed and we will live out that salvation by what we do. Jesus spoke of God's kingdom being rooted in the confession of his authority and the doing of his will. It works like this. The kingdom is limited to those who follow, but it should not ever be confused with God's ultimate rule over everything. In Isaiah 66, 1, God says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of everything. But in a very practical sense, the kingdom of God is not an earthly political movement. It does not rule by swords or by crosses or putting Christian leaders into government to rule other people. The kingdom of God appears whenever individuals take upon themselves the rule and the reign of God. Matthew 7.21 can be uh, translated in a present tense. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, to me comes into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who slaps a fish on their business card. You know, like, it, sometimes that means I rip you off in Jesus' name. You know, not everyone who slaps a, oh, in case of rapture, I'll be, this car's unmanned, is, is a follower. Not everyone who wears a crazy Christian t-shirt is a follower. I know you're totally surprised, right? Like, oh, really? I didn't know that, you know? But Jesus, but this is what Jesus says in that. He says, but it is he who is doing the will of my Father. Doing the will of my Father. You know those living in the kingdom of God by how they live. That's the point. Jesus used kingdom of God to describe the body of his followers among any and every nation in whom God is present in power. And that power is seen in their lives by how they live. I'll end with this. This is Matthew chapter 21. If you've if you're still got your finger in Matthew where we were at the parable of the vineyard, this is right before it. This precedes that parable. Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. Jesus says this. What do you think? There's a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he said, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first. Exactly. The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. There are many people who claim to be Christians. Oh, I'm a Christian. And they don't live it. That's the second son. There are many people out there who have said, oh, I'm not going to follow Jesus ever, and God does an amazing work in their life, and they come and they follow, and they are like the first son who actually lives it out. The kingdom is open to everyone. It will cost you nothing and everything, and everything. 
and it brings real joy, and you get there by loving God and placing faith in Jesus, well, you're not self-centered because it's not all about you. It's all about Jesus. And that love and that faith cause you to submit your entire life to him and how he loves and how he leads. Next week, we're going to start in Exodus. And I'm going to show you guys how, how the people in, in the book of Exodus, that God starts this redemption story. They're in slavery and they cry out and they say, God, we need help. And God hears their cry and he comes and he makes them a people of God. God set aside this whole group of people and, and he blesses them. For what? Not, not to necessarily just get beat up. Their job was to show the world what God was like by how they lived, no matter what the circumstances were that surrounded it. They were to show what God was like. You and I are also invited into that kingdom. We get to cry out into the kingdom of God and know true life. Now, if you are somebody who has spent most of your life and you're, and you're sitting on the fence and you're just went, boy, I don't know if I want to do that. Get off the fence. This is the day. This is the day you enter the kingdom of God, the place where God ultimately has always called you to. The kingdom. What, the, the ultimate intent for you, the most important thing Jesus ever spoke about. And he wants you to live in it. And he wants to make it possible for you to live in it. This is why we come to communion every single week. Because communion is the way that Jesus ushers us into the kingdom. Representatively, We take that crack and we break it like his body was broken for you and I. We dip it in the wine of the grape juice. So it represents his body which was broken for us. And we remember his sacrifice so that we can be people who come into the kingdom of God. The band's going to come up and they are going to play. And as they do these songs, I invite you to take communion. I invite you to pray where you're at and find out where you've been a crazy renter who has just taken all of God's stuff and not actually lived in the kingdom and where you have actually submitted your life to him. And this morning, I ask that you would take some time with God and find out where you need to live in the kingdom of God and where you have not been. We're going to worship God uh, through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall and in the very back. And we give simply because God gave so much to us, so we give back and it's part of our worship. Uh, there'll be elders and deacons in, in the back of the hallway. And if you need prayer for anything whatsoever, they would love to pray with you. They would love to pray with you, especially to introduce you to Jesus Christ, kingdom of God. And then we're also going to worship God through fellowship. We invite you guys to hang out, uh, drink coffee and banana bread, apparently. Uh, which I guess there's still some back there. Oh, did you eat it really? No. There's lots of stuff. There you go. So gorge yourself, and you don't have to pay for lunch somewhere else. So we make it cheap on you, apparently. So it's right Hang out, get to know each other, because we are all people who live in the kingdom of God together. And that means we may have differences. We may have differences, guys. And believe me. We're, not all of us are going to get along, but we're all in the kingdom. So in one sense, we all do need to get along. And then one of the reasons that Jesus died and rose, so reconcile us to God, but also to each other. So we reconcile our lives, and we live in fellowship with each other, and usher each other on, because we are the kingdom of God today. And we walk to where he calls us to walk. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask that we, as your people, would understand better daily the call to live in your kingdom. That we would trust you, for all the things that you have done for us. That our hearts and our lives would not be centered upon ourselves, but they would center, be centered upon you and your kingdom. And God, all the little kingdoms that we try to build on our own, all the, all the things that we try to do that make ourselves feel so important, we would lay at your feet. Because it is your glory and your honor and your kingdom that we need to live within because we will never know true life and true peace 
until we do live within your kingdom. Father, thank you for being a good God that loves us so much and has done so much to bring us to your kingdom as your people. Have us live so that you are glorified by your children. Amen.